0: Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone. Today I am joined by Mark Weber. He is the director of the Institute for Historical Review for a More Just, Sane, and Peaceful World. Find him at IHR.org. Mr. Weber, uh, what are uh, some of the things you focus on at IHR.org?
1: We've put a huge focus on not war as a military conflict. Uh, we're far more, far less interested, and I'm far less interested in uh, the dynamics of, of the military campaigns of war than in how wars begin and how they can end. How do we prevent wars? How do we avoid wars? These are, I think, greater issues. I, many people, of course, they see war as a kind of A sporting event and they're interested in how each side plays out i understand that but far far more important is how wars begin how countries get involved in wars whether it's the vietnam war the iraq war the afghanistan war now of course uh the world news cycle is dominated by the war in ukraine how did it begin how could it have been avoided those are the great issues and consistent with that Uh, We've had a tremendous amount, even before the beginning of the Ukraine war that we're all familiar with now, pointing out the grave um, uh, trajectory of American foreign policy, which made war, I think, all but inevitable. It certainly uh, made it very, very likely, and uh, wise voices were warning uh, for years about the Uh, U.S. foreign policy and relations with Russia that have led to this conflict and that wise and prudent leadership by the United States and other countries, but particularly by the United States, could have prevented this horrible, terrible conflict that we're now seeing. One of the main points that we emphasize over and over is that uh, war itself is a terrible thing. It should be avoided. It's not that history is... uh, uh, littered with bad guys and then good guys and we're the good guys it's that almost every war involves conflicts between uh, countries that see their interests and their um, uh, you know, their interests at stake and uh, they're willing to go to war and sometimes they uh, gravely miscalculate, which is very often what happens in war and so it's very important to, Look at not only the conflict we're seeing with Ukraine today, but again the other wars I mentioned, and of course the First and Second World War, uh, and the need for wise, perceptive, long, uh, far-sighted leadership, especially by the great powers: the United States, Russia, China, the countries that uh, whose military for uh, military force which is very, very important. This is this is really crucial and. The only way that that's possible is by having an understanding of history. This is crucial, and it's one of the reasons why it's called the Institute for Historical Review, and why we're dealing today with a review, a look again at the Second World War, because that's the most um, important conflict in determining the world we live in today, and the mindset of so many American people in the public, but also our leaders in how they look at foreign policy.
0: Today, we're going to be discussing uh, Dr. Sean McMeekin's book, Stalin's War. This, uh, The introduction to this book is very interesting. He says, uh, the national socialists in Germany committed uh, terrible crimes. This, is, uh, What I'm about to say does not <clears> excuse <throat> uh, the evil uh, actions of Adolf Hitler, Hermann Göring, and all these other people. He says, All I'm saying is we are missing a big aspect of this major conflict. He says a lot of people start uh, the clock in either 1939 or 1941, but that misses the eastern part of planet Earth going back to 1933 with Japan and China. So without getting too much in the weeds here... Uh, what uh, what do we need to know about 1933 and Japan and China so we can start to get a bigger grasp of what the Second World War really was about?
1: Right, right. Um, uh, A.J.P. Taylor, the great British historian, once made this point that we very often date the beginning of World War II from the German attack against Poland on September 1st, 1939. And Taylor pointed out many years ago Uh, How almost uh, arbitrary that date is, because war had already for for the for China, war had already been going on for years with Japan in Asia. Uh, So for the Chinese, you could say the war began in 1937, or 1937 is often a war that they a date that they see, Um, and for the Soviet in Russia. Every year, Russians celebrate what they call Victory Day. That's the date that the war ended between Russia and uh, Germany, Nazi Germany was defeated. That's how they see it. They see they don't see the war beginning on September 1st or September 3rd, 1939, when the British and the French declared war in Germany. Every country dates the war depending on its own perspective. Now, uh, and my bigger point is that Uh, uh, Looking, the the war is very different depending on which country one is talking about how how it affects each people. So that dating the beginning of war from when the Germans attacked uh, Poland is really uh, misleading in a sense because that was not the beginning of World War II. It wasn't even the beginning of the European War. That was a localized conflict between Germany and Poland over very specific issues. Two days later, it was the British and the French that declared war on Germany and made it a continental, maybe a world war, but certainly a continental wide war. Uh, If they had not declared war against Germany, there would not have been a second world war, at least in the way we see it. But then on the 17th of September, the Soviet Union struck against Poland from the East. And McMeekin makes the very strong point that the American, uh, he talks about this American amnesia about the fact that Poland wasn't attacked just by Germany in September 1930, but also by the Soviet Union. But because the Soviet Union was an American ally in the Second World War, that's either ignored or overlooked or set aside because Stalin was fighting the bad guy, Hitler. But this is these are all very, very childish or very inaccurate ways of looking at not only the beginning of the Second World War, but the Second uh, but the Second World War as a totality overall. And this is a point McMika makes. its History is not the story of the good guys and the bad guys. And McMeekin makes the point, if you want to talk about World War II, about bad guys, well, Stalin was certainly no good guy. He was uh, in, 19, 19, uh, in the 1930s, early 40s, by far the most oppressive government in the world by almost any standard one can give number of people killed uh, how the economic policy is over was the soviet union not hitler hitler's germany in hitler's germany there was i mean religion was not only tolerated it was encouraged people owned private property almost 99 percent whatever all the businesses were privately owned people were encouraged to have uh homes and property of their own not in the soviet union Uh, And more than that, I mean, if people wanted to leave Germany under Hitler, they could do so. If people went into the country, they could travel around where they wanted, not in the Soviet Union. Uh, I mean, so by any standard, the Soviet government was far, regime was far more oppressive than Hitler. And uh, as McMeekin brings out in the book, the Soviet Union was uh, guilty of attacking all sorts of countries. Um, And in fact, well... Uh, was attacking all these countries, so that history, looking at history in terms of, let's find the good guy, and that's how we're going to look at uh, this, is, is, is not only inaccurate, it's really dangerously wrong, and requires, therefore, this revision, this new look at the Second World War. This is the cover of the book, uh, Stalin's War. Uh, it's one of the most important books published by an American historian on the Second World War ever, but certainly in modern times. It's uh, extraordinarily important. We sell the book. You can order it from us. Um, And of course, it's available widely in bookstores. And one of the important uh, aspects is that this book is published by a major publisher, Basic Books of, of New York. And so it's widely available in bookstores. And it's a very solid book in the sense that It's not so much original. It's that the author has put together a great deal of material in one volume, a very big volume, by the way, of more than 800 pages uh, that um, compels, not just merely uh, invites, but compels a startlingly different look at the Second World War than most people are used to.
0: I want to look at the exact wording of the justification for uh, the declaration of war in 1939. This video is 50 seconds long. I'm not able to pause it. Let's just watch this briefly.
1: I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin is at war with Germany.
0: So please walk us through how Germany invades Poland and then over here, this country, Britain, declares war. Why right. is the party getting involved?
1: Right. Now we're getting a little off uh, the main point of McMeekin's book, but he does talk about this. He talks about how just blatantly hypocritical and self serving and really um- foolish. Britain's declaration of war against Germany was in September 1939. Germany's demands of Poland were not unreasonable. Hitler and Germans, overwhelmingly, this was a view held by people, whether they call themselves conservative or liberal, was that a great injustice had been done to Germany and Germans at the end of the First World War, specifically the German city of Danzig was taken away from Poland, put under United Nations control, despite the, overwhel- the wish overwhelmingly of the people there, they wanted to be part of Germany. There were other problems too, uh, of the German minority in Poland and so forth. But Britain in, uh, 19, in March 1939, uh, in order to get, keep Poland from making an agreement with Germany over Danzig, uh, they gave Poland a one a blank check uh, support that if poles stuck to their guns and refused to concede anything to Germany that Britain would go to war against Germany with Poland they were and supposedly it's to protect Polish independence from German power and influence and hegemony in Eastern Europe okay but It's really hypocritical and deceitful for two reasons. First, because Britain really didn't care about Polish independence at all, because when the Soviets attacked uh, Poland from the east, just uh, two, three weeks later, Britain didn't declare war against the Soviet Union. But more importantly, after five and a half years of war, Poland was under the complete control uh, and power of Stalin, of the Soviet Union. Britain just let it happen. I mean, they, in fact, they demanded that the Polish government accept this hegemony and this control and taking away large amounts of Polish territory and so forth. Second, Britain was not in a position and didn't even try to really back up its pledge to Poland in the way that the Poles had been led to expect. Both Britain and France were given assurances, uh, gave assurances to the Poles that. Once the war began, Britain and France would come in with their full force against Germany. They didn't do that, and so there was months of this phony war in which there was a war in the seas and uh, in Norway and so forth. That's another matter, but the British were what they really were concerned about is they didn't want German power in Eastern Europe to take on the tremendously. Uh, strong role that it did. It meant really German domination, essentially, of Central Europe. Now, largely that's inevitable because Germany was by far the the largest, most populated, the most uh, economically dominant country. But Britain um, has always has for centuries had this policy of opposing whatever power is uh, going to be dominant on the continent, whether it was Philip II of Spain, whether it was the French monarchy for centuries, whether it was Napoleon. But that uh, so-called balance of power policy became rather ridiculous after the unification of Germany in at the end of the 19th century. But the point is Britain declared war supposedly because Polish independence or sovereignty was threatened by Germany but Britain did not, it betrayed its own pledges to the Poles, and if Britain had acted with the kind of foresight that, of course, now we're able to see, there wouldn't have been, the, the conflict could have been resolved peacefully, and yeah, there would have been a German hegemony against basically in Eastern Europe, but that would have been far more preferable in many ways than the sweeping Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, which was the ultimate result of British and American and allied policy at the end of the Second World War.
0: And that's the importance of uh, playing Chamberlain's own words, because you essentially have an ex post facto justification for this entire war. Why do we have to go in for Polish independence? Why did the Second World War happen? Well, uh, because uh, we had to uh, stop the Holocaust from occurring. Uh, These are two totally different uh, objectives that uh that that they tr- they try and scare you they pull you in by scaring you and then uh say that everything's okay cuz We did it uh, for the greater good, for the ideals of democracy. This is a terrible trick that uh, they continuously play. we got to go into Iraq because they're going to nuke us. Well, we're actually there to spread democracy. And then uh, the Taliban uh, is a safe haven for al-Qaeda. Well, actually, we're there so women can get an education and we can spread feminism. I mean, all this time later, they're still going on with these fake narratives. McMeekin mentions that there were actually six cases of countries being invaded by the Soviet Union before Hitler and Stalin went head to head. This, therefore, proves that Stalin, far from being someone who just wanted to sit back <clears throat> and improve the economy, actually had a very aggressive foreign policy as well. Uh, what were the uh, countries that the Soviet Union invaded?
1: Um- just before the German attack against Poland in September 1939, Germany and the Soviet Union signed a non aggression pact. They weren't militarily allies, as some people uh, will sometimes contend. They agreed that they would not attack each other, they wouldn't be enemies. And they did follow up with this trade agreement. And they divided Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, into what they called spheres of influence. Now, The Germans did not expect that the Soviets were going to interpret spheres of influence to mean taking over these places, but after the German, the Molotov-Ribbentrop agreement, the German-Soviet non-aggression treaty, uh, Stalin mobilized the Red Army and struck against six countries. Finland in 1939, in the so-called Winter War against Finland, which uh, took about a tenth of the uh, territory of Finland. He wasn't able to defeat uh, the Finns as quickly or as uh, uh, dramatically as he had wished. What he really wanted to do was take over Finland entirely, and there's there's a long story about that. But also, the Soviet Union took away the independence and incorporated Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, the three Baltic uh, countries uh, that were um, had been part of the uh, Russian Empire before the Bolsheviks took over. And then he also struck against uh, Romania uh, in the south and uh, took part of, of that country as uh, well. And then finally, of course, on September 17th, the Red Army attacked in eastern uh, Pol- uh, from the east in Poland and incorporated actually more of the Polish Republic than the Germans had taken uh, from their side and incorporated uh, um, eastern Polish territory into soviet ukraine and soviet belarus and where where they are even today that's why the city of lviv or lvov or lemberg uh is now part of ukraine it actually had been part of the austro-hungarian empire before the first world war then it was part of the polish republic from the end of the first world war until 1939 and now it's part of ukraine with all sorts of population transfers but those are the six countries and one of the consequences of this was that in 1941, when Germany struck against uh, the Soviet Union on uh, June 22nd, 1941, uh, with Germany were allied Romania and Finland. This is important also for another reason. People assume that uh, Hitler attacked uh, Stalin in 1941 because he's this sort of crazed madman who wanted, this was the American line at the, at the time, was this madman who wanted to take over the world, and this is part of his so-called timetable for taking over the world. Well, however diluted or accurate or valid Hitler's view was, uh, the danger of the Soviet Union was a reality that was uh, certainly very much on the minds, not just of Germany, but also of Germany's allies, and especially the Romanians, the Finns, but later, Hungarians, Slovakia, Croatia, and other countries joined with Germany in this so that uh, the, the Finnish government, which actually was even a parliamentary democracy during that period, they were allies of Germany during the Second World War because they had no illusions about the, well, aggressive policy of Stalin and what that meant for Finland. And of course, Romania as well had been attacked and part of their territory had been taken away. So those are the six countries uh, that McMeekum's talking about, but the American media uh, port- portrayed the Soviet Union during this period. Basically, they're a good, they're good guys, unlike that bad Hitler, because he's also in favor of one world. He's in favor of uh, equality of all peoples. He's in favor of a new world order of peace, permanent peace, and equality around the world. And so much of the American media and many. American intellectuals and politicians were very seduced or impressed by this kind of rhetoric and gave the Soviets a pass, you might say, and Stalin a pass that they, of course, did not give to Hitler.
0: Now, what was the Lend-Lease Program?
1: Well, this is um, Roosevelt, um, and this is a point that McMeekin doesn't get into as much as in the book as, um, well, I have on and other writings. Roosevelt already from 1937 and 38 was pressing for war against Germany uh, under the table. He was already in 1938, he had called in the British ambassador to the White House and tried to uh, and, and uh, induce and persuade him about how Britain ought to go to war and create a war with Germany because we've got to get Hitler, we've got to get him. Um, but Already, Roosevelt was pushing for war. And lend Lease was a, a program he came up with in 1940-41 to get around the very strong uh, feeling and sentiment of the American people to stay out of a new war in Europe. That's because American public, American public was very disappointed by the consequences of its involvement in the First World War. In the First World War, America declared, got into the war with all sorts of big promises, of nobles, with noble sounding words from, Fra- from Woodrow Wilson. And it turned out pretty quickly uh, that the other countries involved had very different ideas of what they wanted. They weren't interested in a new world of peace and harmony. They were interested in crushing Germany and grabbing as much German territory as they could. And so the American public was very much in favor of staying out of another war in Europe, and they passed the neutrality laws. Roosevelt tried to get around that and and, uh, came up with something called Lend-Lease, which was a face-saving way of giving aid to Britain and then later to the Soviet Union when America was officially neutral. This is completely contrary to international law to say, we're neutral but we're going to support one side and uh, punish the other side and go against the other side in a conflict overseas, in this case between Britain on one hand and Germany on the other. But on the basis of this Lend-Lease program, America turned over 50 destroyers to the British in return to 99-year leases on military bases in the Western Hemisphere so that Roosevelt was able to sell this to the public by saying, oh, and we're not giving things, we're getting something in return. But it was really a, a face-saving measure to give military uh, aid to Britain. <clears throat> when Germany attacked this and its allies attacked the Soviet Union in June 1941, Roosevelt immediately declared that the United States was going to give every military and economic assistance it could to the Soviet Union, even though the United States, again, was supposedly neutral. And immediately dispatched his confidant, Harry Hopkins, to Moscow to meet with Stalin and to ascertain how much and how quickly American military aid could be given to the Soviets. So anyway, this was all done in the under the name of, of Lend-Lease, which was really a vehicle for American involvement in the war without actually declaring war.
0: Now, um, before I get into... Pearl Harbor. Is there anything else we need to know before going into December of 1941?
1: Yes. <laughs> the main point of the book, about McMeekin's book, it, or one of the very, very strong points he makes is: what were why did Germany attack the Soviet Union in June 1941? What was <clears throat> what was Hitler thinking? <clears throat> now the standard <clears throat> view of the German attack. In the american media at the time and in american propaganda films most famously there was a whole series of u.s government propaganda films called why we fight made by frank capra you can see him easily on youtube the whole idea was that hitler was part was was on a march to take over the entire world and that the attack against the soviet union was just part of this master plan that was the american line for years and Uh, It still has a lot of resonance uh, because it's consistent with what uh, our motion pictures and so forth have been telling us for a long time. But Germany, Hitler made the decision reluctantly over time to finally attack the Soviet Union and did so only after Stalin began uh, making impossible blackmail demands, not only of Germany, but of all of Europe for control. Not only of, um, not only a kind of hegemony in Eastern Europe, but uh, Molotov visited uh, Berlin in November 1940, and astonishingly, the, uh, the Soviet uh, Molotov and the Soviet Union was insisting that the Germans sign off on Soviet takeover of Finland, Bulgaria, the Dardanelles—that is, the uh, of Turkey. Uh, Romania. This was just incredible. Hitler could hardly believe it. I mean, who, who was the winner in Europe? It wasn't the Soviet Union. It was Germany that defeated France. and But anyway, this was just shocking. And then uh, he gave an order to prepare for the military campaign. But the final decision was made to attack when it became absolutely clear that the Soviet um Military buildup, which was the largest military buildup in history, uh, was directed against not only Germany, but all of Europe. And that's why Germany's, uh, Germany had allies during the uh, Second World War. Almost all the countries of, or most of the countries of Europe, were allies of Germany during the Second World War. They didn't do so because Hitler threatened them or forced them, but because they saw along with Germany, that Stalin and the Soviet Union was an enormous threat. And McMeekin goes into great detail about how the German uh, attack on June 22nd, along with Romania and Finland and then other countries, was up against a gargantuan, enormous Soviet bill of that was far greater than that of Germany and her allies. And that's ultimately why uh, Germany lost. It miscalculated. Hitler said this both publicly and privately. Other German leaders said this. They did not realize, I know it's astonishing, the extent, the vast scope of the Soviet buildup militarily from 1939, just before the German attack in June 1941 against uh, Germany, building up in preparation for attack against Germany and of Europe. And the figures are just astonishing. I mean, the Soviet Air Force, in June 1941, the Soviet Air Force was not only much larger than the German Air Force, it was larger than the combined air forces of the world put together at that time. Soviet artillery uh, was not only vastly larger in numbers than the German attack the Germans had when they attacked, the Soviets had built up an artillery uh, force larger than the rest of the world put together. The Soviets had built up an enormous paratroop or uh, uh, parachute military force, which is used only in offensive campaigns, that was not only larger than what Germany had, it was larger, again, than the entire rest of the world's uh, airborne uh, military offensive force put together. All of this was just astonishing. When the Germans attacked... Uh, They were astonished, not only by the discovery of the huge scope of the the Soviet military, but also the quality, not just the quantity, but quality. Already in 1941, the Germans were up against T-34 and Roshellov KV tanks, which were the heaviest and most formidable tanks in the world, used by any country at that time. Now, the Germans acted uh, very, very quickly to try to offset this, and they produced their own tanks, which were, of course, very good quality during the war, but they were unprepared for not only the huge scale and scope of the Soviet military in 1941, but even the quality of it. And it's a remarkable thing that even though Germany and its allies struck first and made tremendous uh, military gains, Within the next uh, several months up until the onset of winter and, and in spite of the fact that the Germans were able to take over virtually all of the Ukraine, the Baltic, a huge amount of the Soviet uh, agricultural and military. Uh, uh, structure of this of the state, the Soviets still won still prevailed against Germany that already speaks to the enormous scale of the Soviet military, because Stalin's Soviet state was not a normal state in the sense. This was done at the cost of the living standard of the Russian people. Uh, They were essentially just worse than serfs, really, Uh, all dedicated to the building of this huge military, because for Stalin and for Lenin, World War was not a bad thing, it was an opportunity to spread Bolshevism or Communism all over the world. The First World War, which was a catastrophe, brought the Soviets to power in Russia. And Stalin hoped and believed that a Second World War would offer the opportunity for the Soviets to dominate and recreate a Union of Soviet Socialist Republic's empire over all of Europe. And that was his uh, view and his belief because the Soviet Union, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, wasn't confined to Russia. Ultimately, the ultimate goal of Bolsheviks, of the communists, was a, the entire globe was to be a Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The hammer and sickle ultimately was to fly over and over the entire globe. Now, that's very important to understand because Stalin's Soviet Union was not a normal country. It was dedicated to a worldwide Soviet empire based upon the outlook and the theories of Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin, uh, and, and and Stalin. And that's the inconsistent with that.
0: Correct. And you can even read Stalin's own words in his uh, small book, dialectical and historical materialism, where he talks about the only justifiable result of our policies is world domination. Workers of the world unite uh, is uh, the specific common turn or international socialism. Communism uh, is uh, is this goal. So uh, I'm going chronologically here. I know we got to get back to the Soviets, but the reason it's important to bring in Pearl Harbor and America into this is because this is, well, you know, well, we made a decision, this Lend-Lease program at first, but then our hands were totally tied because we were attacked at Pearl Harbor, and then Japan is an ally of Germany, so we basically had to go in. Just a, a couple things that I want to shed light on with regard to <laughs> Pearl Harbor. This is a book you guys sell at the Institute for Historical Review, uh, The Story of the Secret War. You guys still sell this, correct, by George yes. Morgenstern? Yes, this edition
1: actually is published by us. It's our own edition.
0: No, very nice. Uh, All right. So I am just going to uh, read uh, two uh, quick clips here. In his diary entry of November 25th, 13 days before the Pearl Harbor attack, Stimson, referencing Henry Stimson, Secretary of War at the time, expressed the dilemma in its baldest terms. Describing the War Cabinet meeting in the White House, he stated, there the president brought up Entirely. The relations with the Japanese. He brought up the event that we were likely to be attacked, perhaps as soon as next Monday, for the Japanese are notorious for making an attack without warning, and the question was what we should do. The question was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. The second quote that we have from Stern. this uh, I believe is published in uh, 1947. Japan, um, let me see here, okay. Stimson expressed his reaction to the Japanese attack, which was costing 3,000 American lives with the utmost frankness. He wrote in his diary, when the news first came that Japan had attacked us, my first feeling was of relief that the indecision was over and that a crisis had come in a way which would unite our people. This continued to be my dominant feeling in spite of the news and catastrophes which quickly developed. For I feel that this country united has practically nothing to fear while the apathy and divisions stirred up by unpatriotic men had to be hitherto very discouraging. So, Mr. Weber, uh, what else do we need to know about the work of George Morgenstern and the attack at Pearl Harbor to get a true understanding of this conflict?
1: Well, um, I want to I guess shamelessly promote uh, this book by George Morgenstern. Uh, George Morgenstern was uh, for years an editorial writer for the Chicago Tribune, uh, very good writer. Uh, And the book is, I think, has held up very well as, I think, the best single solid book on the U.S. uh, role in and background to the Pearl Harbor attack. He doesn't overstate this case, but he doesn't understate it as well. Um, The, uh, well, uh, it's it's a very good background, and you've cited some, I mean, the quotes you gave also give some Uh, sense of what Roosevelt's policy was, uh, that the Roosevelt administration was interested and and saw war as inevitable between the United States on the one hand and the Soviet Union and others uh, with the United States against Japan and Germany. Um, Now, uh, I want to shift slightly because uh, already, though, the United States was even more overt, the Roosevelt administration was even more overt in doing everything just short of war uh, against Germany, uh, even more so than it was against Japan. Uh, Japan was a much more secondary issue, both in terms of US foreign policy overall, which was much more, I mean, already the United States was giving military aid on a very large scale to uh, the Soviet Union and to Britain. Uh, and, and that's really more. And Stimson also made the point, too, that already the United States was due, was uh, it, Hitler had every legal justification for already declaring war against the United States before uh, the Pearl Harbor attack. Um, but Hitler decided to declare war on the United States in solidarity with Japan, uh, not only because he already saw war as already taking place. And there was a there was a big conference right after Pearl Harbor. Uh, Hitler called us military advisors, and they said, well, what should we do about this? Should we declare war on the United States or not? Now, you have to remember, just a few days before Pearl Harbor, uh, the Chicago Tribune and some other American papers revealed the so-called rainbow plan of the Roosevelt administration to, to dispatch even a huge American military force to Europe in 1942, Uh, Already, Roosevelt had given shoot on site orders to the American Navy to shoot and destroy uh, German shipping uh, in the Atlantic in 1941. All this is just very, very blatantly uh, one-sided already, and acts of war, really, against Germany. But uh, they decided that, given what was happening that if, the, if Germany declared war, then the German submarines and German think would be able to strike at least some blow against America before American military power would start to really uh, become very, very decisive. Because essentially, Hitler and the Germans did not plan for a long war. They hoped and believed that the Soviet Union and Soviet military had to be subdued, essentially, that winter, the winter of 1941-42. That was a miscalculation, a fatal miscalculation. But it was, um, and so even though the G- Germany and its allies in Japan uh, won some spectacular victories, even in, throughout 1942 and up to the beginning of 1943, the overwhelming, the very great military and economic power of the United States and, again, of the Soviet Union began becoming more and more decisive uh, throughout 1942 and 1943. uh, The preponderance, both in numbers, uh, economic power and so forth, of the United States and the Soviet Union became being ever more uh, decisive.
0: Just a couple more things on Pearl Harbor. Uh, we have a document titled the McCullum Memo, which was uh, made uh, popular by Robert Stanett in his book *Day of Deceit*. This was published in 1999. The documents from 1940. Uh, number nine on this list of ten items that uh, the uh, that Arthur McCullum is discussing in the, the, this memo here. He says. It is not believed that in the present state of political opinion in the United States, government is capable of declaring war against Japan without more ado, and it is barely possible that vigorous action on our part might lead the Japanese to modify their attitude. Therefore, the following course of action is suggested. He lists a number of things, one of which is uh, give all possible aid to Chinese government of Chiang Kai-shek, Uh, Letter H was complete embargo of all U.S. trade with Japan in collaboration with a similar embargo imposed by the British Empire. We know that this document was taken into consideration because this was later referred to as the Export Control Act of 1940. And then uh, he finishes this uh, document by saying, if by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. At all events, we must be fully prepared to accept the threat of war. And then the final piece of evidence that is important to take into account here is an article titled War Entry Plans Laid to Roosevelt from The New York Times on January 2nd of 1972. Uh, This account of uh, the Roosevelt Churchill talks were contained in 950 volumes of British War Cabinet papers made public for the first time. It's basically going over a meeting in August of 1941 in uh, Newfoundland between Churchill and Roosevelt. Churchill writes that he, Roosevelt, obviously was determined that they should come in in August of 41. The president said that he would wage war but not declare it, and that he would become more and more provocative if the Germans did not like it, they could attack American forces. The president's orders of the U.S. Navy escorts were to attack any German U-boat, which showed itself, even if it were 200 or 300 miles away from the convoy. Everything was to be done to force an incident. The president had taken this very well and made it clear that he would look for an incident which would justify him to opening hostilities. So it's not just a feeling that... I have that uh, Roosevelt was very hell-bent on bringing America into war. It was an open provocation. It was a policy. We have Secretary of War Stimson. We have President Roosevelt. We have Arthur McCollum. Um, anything else uh, on that issue uh, as we move on to 42, well, 43, and 44? Yeah, These are
1: all good points, and it's quite true what you say. That was at the so-called um, Atlantic Charter meeting between Roosevelt and Churchill in August 1941. Um, it's um, also important to, remember, to to keep in mind that to try to convince the American public to go along with all of this, the Roosevelt administration engaged in a large campaign of, of lies and deceit to sell uh, the war on the American public. And there's a number of items on our website and has been over uh, time about a lot of this. There's a long article uh, by me entitled Collusion about the under-secret uh, collaboration between the British and the American governments to persuade the American public with all sorts of deceitful propaganda about how uh, the uh, uh, Hitler was this big threat to America. But one of the high points of this came in October 1941, when Roosevelt gave a a radio address to the country. He gave it at a meeting at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., And he announced that Hitler is this enormous threat not only to the British and the Russians, everybody else, but directly to the United States. And he cited uh, what he said were two secret documents that he had obtained somehow uh, from the German government that showed that Hitler was bent on uh, taking over uh, all of Latin America and turning South America into puppet states of Germany and Germany was going to take control of the Panama Canal. It, he said he had a secret map uh, that the Germans had put together to show how they were going to take over uh, South America. This map, in fact, as later we learned, was a concoction of the British uh, intelligence. It was a it was fake. Uh, Hitler had no such ideas. The idea is absurd, really, on its face. But Roosevelt. Uh, made this in a very solemn uh, statement to the American public that this is proof of how Hitler was determined to control uh, the entire uh, Western Hemisphere. Second, Roosevelt told the American public in this address that he had a secret document showing how Germany was going to take over the world and abolish all of the world's religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, This is fantastic craziness, really. I mean, considering that uh, during this very period, the German military was helping people in Ukraine and Russia open churches all over uh, what had been the Soviet Union in in, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and the Baltic. And in Germany itself during this very period, church services were packed, uh, both Protestant and Catholic in Germany itself. The, the idea is crazy for all sorts of reasons, but Roosevelt made these statements to the American public about this secret plan to abolish all the German, all the religions of the world. Now, the American public at that time—this is important to understand—up until Vietnam War, I would say, and I remember this change over my lifetime. Americans believed that their president told the truth. There was an astonishingly high level of trust that the American president uh, told the truth to the American people. Now, it's very hard for, I think, younger people today to realize the extent of trust that people had in the media and the government uh, before Vietnam and certainly up until the 70s or 80s. We take for granted now this very high level of cynicism by the public of politicians. But that's not the situation in 19, during the 1940s and 1950s. It was a shock when the uh, tapes of uh, Richard Nixon were made public in the White House, not only that he talked in a very cynical way about public affairs, but that he even swore in the White House. Because Americans had this idea the president was this sort of noble figure who used refined and careful language and that uh, uh, careful consideration was given to issues before him. See, all that is really uh, fallen apart in recent years. But in 1941, when Roosevelt made these astonishing uh, false claims about Germany to try to get Americans to support his policy of war, the American public believed he was telling the truth, and the uh, protests by the German government that these statements were crazy. They were. There was no foundation whatsoever. The American public just took the view, well, who are you going to believe? The American leader of uh, the greatest democracy in the world or that terrible German uh, horrible hit- dictator Hitler? It's a little bit like uh, in the run-up to the Iraq War. Uh, the American public could either believe Colin Powell and George Bush or they could believe that horrible Saddam Hussein. Well, who are you going to believe? Well, the American public went along and believed Uh, 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 because it's very hard and and jolting for the American public to believe that their leaders can lie brazenly on this stupefying uh, scale to the American public and with the expectation that the American public will believe them.
0: When we look at uh, things like, is there anything we should talk about before we get to Yalta in 1945? Well,
1: I I wanted to mention about Pearl Harbor. Um, I'm not one of those who believe that Roosevelt thought that there was an impending attack on Pearl Harbor. He did not expect that. It's very important to realize that in 1941, American military leaders, including Roosevelt, did not believe the Japanese were capable of carrying out the attack they did against Pearl Harbor. The Pearl Harbor attack by uh, Japanese air force air, air warplanes involved uh, dropping uh, torpedoes against American um, uh, uh, battleships in a uh, in a very narrow for that time very narrow confined way, and no country had ever done something that um, uh, complicated that that kind of a maneuver. The Uh, Torpedoes were dropped in relatively shallow water by planes that had to uh, fly a long distance. And in fact, it's astonishing that so unexpected was this Japanese um, attack against the warships at the uh, Pearl Harbor uh, in uh, Hawaii that much of the American media and even military, military experts thought the Japanese are incapable of doing it. The pilots must have been German. I know that's astonishing, but there was a great deal in the American media that because the American attitude toward the Japanese in 1941 was they're really short, little nearsighted, funny people that can't really do much of anything. It was a shock that the Japanese were able even to carry out the attack. There was a far greater expectation the Japanese would attack in Philippines, and they did. They did. But. That was uh, expected in a way, or uh, it was anticipated in a way, that the uh, startlingly innovative attack against Pearl Harbor was not. Also, the Pearl Harbor attack only attacked American um, battleships that were stationed there. The American uh, carrier fleet that normally was at Pearl Harbor was actually on maneuvers and was not attacked. And so the Japanese victory, although it was a significant military victory, was not anywhere near as decisive as the Japanese had hoped it would be, because the whole car- no, none of the carriers were even affected by the Pearl Harbor attack.
0: So uh, Hawaii became a uh, an American state. It looks like. August 21st of 1959. So right. if Hawaii is not a state, why is America in Hawaii in nineteen?
1: Well, it's, it was a territory. It was a territory like Alaska. It was not until 1959 that Alaska and Hawaii became states. Okay. It's like uh, Guam. It's a territory of the United States. But more importantly, it was an American military base at Pearl Harbor. Uh, big, big Navy base was there. And so it was considered an attack against the United States. I mean, that's, uh, um, uh, well, anyway, that's the reason for that. It wasn't a state of the United States at the time, yes, but it was a U.S. military base, and it was an attack against the U.S. military.
0: Going into the years of 1942, 43, 44, the years before uh, Yalta and a, um, a and a ceasefire, or not a ceasefire, but a surrender on behalf of Germany. What do we need to know about those three years before we can understand Yalta?
1: What's important, and McMeekin makes this point very much in his book, is that American military aid was very was on a very large scale to the Soviet Union in that time, and was based upon this notion that Roosevelt and his administration had that Stalin was a trustworthy man, that he was a a trustworthy partner for a new world order. Remember, uh, there's a lot of criticism of people of globalism in the United States, but the pioneer globalist uh, regime in the world was the United States of America. It was Franklin Roosevelt that pushed uh, the founding of the United Nations Organization in 1944, 45. And with the idea that uh, the United Nations organization would be a kind of new world organization that would permanently ensure a a new age without any uh, war or even oppression. It's very important to realize that the United States laid out during the war uh, political goals, a new world in which uh, uh, even fear and want would be eliminated around the world. Now, that's fantastic to believe, but that's what the United States claimed it was fighting for. And in building this new world order, no country was going to be a greater partner of the United States in doing that than Joseph Stalin. Well, Stalin was not as foolish as Roosevelt. He had very definite uh, great power ambitions for the Soviet Union and goals and he wasn't going to be deterred by Roosevelt's idea, which you'll find over and over among American politicians, that if you can just be on a friendly personal basis with the leader of a country, the leader will um, cooperate with the United States and everything will will work out. Now, twice uh, Franklin Roosevelt met with uh, Joseph Stalin during the war and with uh, Winston Churchill. The first was in 1943, in Iran, which by the way had been occupied and invaded illegally by, the, by uh, Britain and the Soviet Union in 1941. <clears throat> so they met the first time at uh, Tehran, the capital of Iran in 1943. And then the second meeting was in February, 1945 in the Crimea at Yalta, when um, Roosevelt and Stalin met just weeks actually before Roosevelt's death. He was a very sick man, a very ill man when he finally met with uh, uh, Stalin in uh, in Crimea, in Yalta. But in all of, in these uh, uh, meetings, the basic view of the United States was that Stalin was a great partner. And Roosevelt made this point privately and publicly over and over that the Soviet Union and the United States are firm partners in building a new world order, a permanent or world, new world order of peace and uh, happiness for the entire humanity. Now, uh, the re- reality was that Roosevelt and uh, Stalin and Churchill disposed of the fates of millions of people without consulting them. This was completely contrary to the big pledges given by the United States about Self-determination, democracy, blah, 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 that the United States uh, claimed it was in favor of. And millions of people were turned over uh, to Soviet rule without ever consulting them. But not just even, it wasn't just a betrayal of those people. Already at uh, uh, Tehran and Yalta, the United States agreed to uh, uh, allow the Soviets um, special privileges and control in China without even consulting the Chinese who are supposedly a big ally of the United States in the war. But again, this is not unusual. There's lots of big talk of peace and democracy and freedom, blah, 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 by American leaders. And then these very principles are trampled on by the actual policies that the United States supported during the Second World War and has done many other times around the world. And we see this happening even to our, in the present, uh, day, But anyway, that's the, the that's what the important point is that these conferences uh, are uh, expressions of the very strong sense of trust. You might say willful ignorance or criminal uh, ignorance of the United States government in its policy toward the Soviet Union during World War II.
0: And again, one of the great propaganda methods that uh, we so commonly face is we look at something not only as inherently good team called the allies and inherently bad team called the axis which even today the all good ukrainian government versus the all evil vladimir putin (laughs) the uh, the other propaganda method is the benefits only approach so they just say look there used to be this evil national socialist government and now there's no national socialist government they don't focus on any of the costs not the 50 million dead not the hundreds of millions of people displaced not all the men who were conscripted not all the people who lost loved ones uh not all the families uh torn apart so when it comes to the costs of this war what were the costs let's go uh from 1945 to 1991 what are the major uh, terrible things that happened in those decades as a cause or result of the Soviet Union being so much uh, more powerful than it otherwise would have been.
1: Um, I'm going to quote from what um, McMeekin says about this. He says, in view of the disappointing returns, it is worth asking whether the sacrifices of millions of Poles, Britons, Frenchmen, Canadians, Australians, Russians, Americans, others were necessary in the first place. Um, he, he he talks about um, whatever Americans voted for in 1940 in voting for Roosevelt. It was not to finance, produce weapons for, and hire millions of Russians as, in effect, mercenaries or have their sons fight in a global war to the death to make much of Europe and Asia safe for communism. Um, he, he makes the a point that over and over we ended up Uh, Supporting uh, the Soviet hegemony over uh, the very countries that we claim that we're fighting for the freedom of, and at at a terror. I mean, it's just it's it's just sad, really. I mean, just very very tragic that no nothing justifies the huge, bloody cost in lives, with suffering and destruction that the Second World War uh, brought that uh that, that, that justifies any of that um this is a very good quote and McMeekin only tangentially raises this he he, he says we really should look relook look and re-examine not only the u.s relationship with the soviet union and stalin during the war but the whole trajectory of the war and he writes this still more uncomfortable questions Questions surround matters such as Britain's misleading promises to Poland in 1939, which encouraged Polish leaders to resist Hitler on the largely mistaken understanding that Britain and France would render them active armed assistance against Germany. The Allies' rejection of German peace feelers in October of 1939 after the fall of Poland, Churchill's refusal to parlay in June of July 1940 after the fall of Norway, France, and the Low Countries, his contemptuous treatment of the Hess mission, Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy had flown to try to bring peace with Britain in May, 1941, um, all of this. And you know, people say, well, you can't make a deal with Hitler. Well, one person who said he could have made a deal with Hitler uh, and kept the British uh, in place and kept their uh, society going was Churchill himself. He wrote to Stalin during the war saying, I could have made a deal with Hitler in 1940 on very good terms for Britain, but I didn't do so because I was committed with you to fighting this war. I mean, and, it's just
0: and, and where can people find that uh, th- that source? Um, That's
1: quoted. Um, well, it's 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 a it's a public document, but uh, it, there's an uh, a long review of a movie uh, uh, by. Um, uh, oh, it came out a few years ago about Churchill. Uh, and I wrote a review of this and quoted this very point. In Oh, in, was it
0: uh, Darkest Hour with scary, yes, Darkest Hour, right. And oh, I, that was horrible.
1: Well, I wrote a, this is, this is typical of the kind of um, hagiographic, the kind of praise of Churchill. He's saying we will fight on the beaches, we'll fight. And our only uh, <clears throat> goal, he says, is victory. Well, victory for what? What's the whole yeah, point? Exactly. I mean, well, <clears throat> see, this is a very, very dangerous thing. War is not a, a football game. War is not a, some game. It involves terrible costs and consequences. And at the end, if the end result is Britain is ruined, uh, it's. I mean, he claimed at the beginning of 1940, he's fighting to preserve even the British Empire. Well, of course, that's gone, too, by the end. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's horrible. And Britain is completely subservient to the united states which took over first of all command of the military during the war itself from britain in 1944-45 uh, but finally uh, britain was displaced even in its economic and uh financial role in the world by the united states because britain was on its back britain was completely in hock to the united states uh MacMaker makes the point that <clears throat> the, uh Military aid was given to Stalin by Roosevelt on, on better terms than it was given even to Britain. The United States put all sorts of conditions on aid to uh, Britain that it did not put on the Soviet Union. That alone is an astonishing thing. Well, the, the, the rationale for that was that Stalin was actually fighting with blood against those uh, terrible Nazis and so we can't ask too much of Stalin because he's really making a sacrifice in a way that Britain was not. Britain wasn't able to win any real victories against the Germans, except, I mean, uh, the, 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 Stalin was willing uh, to just throw endless millions of men into the meat grinder, you might say, of war with very little thought of the consequences in human terms. Because the Soviets had such huge uh, manpower resources in a way that Britain uh, did not. Anyway, these are the the... reassessing World War II is important because it still plays this very, very big role in how not only the public, but our leaders look at uh, the 20th century and look at war. They see war in terms of a kind of good guy, bad guy, and history's not like that. Of course, Americans feel justified about the outcome of the Second World War because out of it, the United States emerged as the one huge power that hadn't been destroyed in the war. But that would have been the case no matter what. No matter what the outcome, the United States would still have emerged as this great dominant power in the world. And our own prosperity here at home, our own standard of living would not have been hurt by whether... Eastern Europe was controlled by Hitler, or whether it was controlled by Stalin, or whether the Chinese controlled, communists controlled China, or didn't. America, fortunately, has two great friends, the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. And wars are, the consequences of wars are far away from our territories, and we have such an abundance of resources here that we are not dependent uh, in the way that so many other countries are for um, basic to sustain our standard of living and so forth. By the way, that's true of Japan. That's the reason Japan attacked in 1941. At that time, the only source of petroleum, which was essential for a modern country for Japan was the United States. And when the Japan, when the United States imposed an oil embargo against Japan, Japan faced, faced the prospect of just dis- ruin as a developed or modern country because at that time it had no access to other forms uh, of other, other sources of petroleum, except the United States. So Japan faced the prospect of uh, ruin without war or the possibility maybe, of securing uh, what was necessary to have a modern society with war. It was a gamble, they lost it. But anyway, that was the calculation the Japanese uh, made. It's, it's, it was a fatal and uh, ill-advised one but it wasn't completely irrational. It's not, it's not stupid. Anyway, anyway, just bringing that up. But anyway, the point is really how important the Second World War is. And above all, because that's considered even more so than it was in the 50s and 60s, the great moral lesson of the 20th century or of modern American history that we're uh, told over and over must never be forgotten.
0: Yeah, and in celebrating the Second World War, they forget to mention that we then later fought against the Soviet Union in proxy wars in Korea and Vietnam and Angola and Grenada and Nicaragua and Afghanistan in the 1980s. And communism had a much better name, so it was welcomed by ideologues in universities. And now 17% of professors identify explicitly as Marxists in the social sciences. Stuff that we have to pay for through tax dollars, they're forcing us to pay for this thing that our grandfathers were conscripted to fight against in uh, in these conflicts. And in, uh, look at this right here. We have all of Czechoslovakia given to the uh, Soviet uh, Union, Well, uh, Czech Republic. It was called Czechoslovakia in 45, wasn't it?
1: yes well it was revived i mean the country fell apart in 1939 and then it fell apart again in 1992 because it's a kind of artificial state but that's yeah i mean it's called czechoslovakia for a long time yeah
0: but the point is is that's why neville chamberlain is supposedly this big doofus in history because this idiot conceded czechoslovakia and uh, so instead they went to war, tons of people died, tons of people with their limbs blown off, and they gave uh, Czechoslovakia to Joseph Stalin. So, uh, and, and Churchill just happily did this, I guess. For all the criticism of Chamberlain, they happily uh, embraced the, uh, the, the the same thing. And, the, okay, I, I, I want to tie this together and discuss uh, something you said in our time Uh, our job in a time of crisis. So people will very often say second world war. Well, um, if you uh, don't hate Assad, Assad is kind of like Hitler. And if you don't want to take a stand up against him, you're kind of like Neville Chamberlain. But if you want to go to war with Assad or Gaddafi or Saddam or Putin, well, then you are like Winston Churchill. And this is the narrative that they keep giving us, which these historical lies feed into the modern day. So Mark Weber, director of the IHR, what is our job in a time of crisis?
1: It's to try to raise awareness about conflict and war and a greater understanding of history with the hope that uh, with this better understanding, we will have policies that are more that are wiser and more prudent and avoid much of the horrors, suffering, death that comes from conflicts like this. Yeah, you've summarized it uh, very well about how we're supposed to uh, uh, look at the uh, Second World War. I mean, John Mearsheimer was warning for years, for has been warning for years about the consequences of expanding NATO, and predicted uh, that what what has happened now did, was going to happen. And he's now considered some sort of traitor. I mean, and again, Saddam Hussein, remember, during the eight-year war between Iraq and uh, uh, Iran, the United States was helping Saddam Hussein. Uh, He was considered sort of our guy for a long time, or the Assad family in Syria for a long time was friendly to the United States. That's one of the, again, uh, it should be um, startling facts that the good guy of Uh, one time can become the bad guy and vice versa when the media all gets us all uh, revved up to think, oh, he's like Hitler or whatever. He's a bad guy. I mean, some of the same bad guys that are now, uh, we're we're told are bad guys, were once considered good guys and and vice versa. Anyway, this is, um, uh, again, ought to make anyone who really cares about Uh, the United States place in the world and the consequences of war really scratch their head and at least question things. Part of the problem, and you and I have talked about this, is that the average citizen doesn't have any personal experience with which to evaluate or understand foreign policy and war overseas. Unlike taxes or school policy or masks or vaccinations that people have personal experience with, very, very few Americans have any personal experience about Iraq or Saudi Arabia or Israel. Well, some do, of course, but or uh, Ukraine. And so we're we're more dependent on on what our politicians and our media tells us. And that's very unfortunate because uh, U.S. policy with regard to these places has tremendous consequences, not only for Americans, but for uh, the world. And we're supposed to make those decisions Based on trust, I guess, of our media and our politicians. And that's a a dangerous thing, especially when we've seen this uh, very dismal record of deceit and uh, slanted uh, portrayal and uh, uh, misrepresentation by our political leaders time and time again.
0: So finally, of course, John J. Mearsheimer, someone uh, great you can focus on. The goal to take away is, all right, so they were wrong in the past. Who can? We trust now. I just want to end on this quote by Patrick J. Buchanan. This is from 1999 in his book, A Republic, Not an Empire. But if the Russians gave war guarantees to Mexico and began arming and training Mexican troops, would any Russian assurance diminish our determination to run them out of our hemisphere? Offering NATO memberships to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and as some urge, Ukraine is rashness bordering on madness. Mark Weber of the IHR.org. Thank you so much for your time, sir.
1: Thank you, Keith. Pleasure again being on with you.